Hey there, it's Jim Stengel, host of the CMO Podcast. We're all marketers here, so let's be real for a sec. We all know that your website shouldn't be a static asset. It should be a dynamic part of your strategy to build your brand and drive conversions. That's Marketing 101. But 54% of marketing leaders say web updates take too long. That's over half of you listening right now. And that's where Webflow comes in. Their visual-first platform allows you to build, launch, and optimize web pages fast. That means you can set ambitious marketing goals and your site can rise to that challenge. Learn why teams like Dropbox, IDEO, and Orange Theory all trust Webflow to achieve their most ambitious goals today at webflow.com. This episode of the CMO Podcast is part of our Leadership During Crisis series. For these short episodes, I am inviting back previous guests to see how they are leading during the pandemic, how they are addressing new challenges, and how they are providing for their consumers, their employees, and the public during these unprecedented times. Today, my guest on Leadership During Crisis is Jennifer Say, SVP and Chief Marketing Officer of Levi Strauss & Company, the iconic American brand founded in 1853. In this episode, we explore how Jen is managing herself, her family, and her team through these unique times. We talk about her learning and building better representation of black leaders in her organization, and we talk about how the release of the Netflix documentary Athlete A, which she produced, has changed her life. This is my conversation with Jennifer Say. Welcome back, Jen, to the CMO Podcast. You were on my podcast earlier. And the last time we talked and recorded, it was pre-pandemic, pre-George Floyd, pre-California fires, pre-your documentary, Athlete A, releasing on Netflix. So we have a lot to talk about in the next 30 minutes or so. But first, I have to ask you, how are you, your family, and your team at Levi's doing through all this stuff? It's a lot, isn't it? And now in California, we have these fires, which is where I am right now. And so even going outside is sort of not really recommended. Um, I have four kids, you know, none in school, not in school officially, you know. Um, So it's difficult. I have so much empathy for everyone right now and everyone's dealing with different situations, you know, and I and you know, as far as my team goes, I just try to be super empathetic to that. I mean, I feel for the people who are at home alone, sheltering in place by themselves. I can't even imagine, although having five other people in the house is difficult as well. (laughs) Um, So we're getting through it, but, um, and I try to, you know, stay optimistic and give myself breaks and get exercise and just be a good empathetic leader and manager and mom and all that. But, you know, we all have our moments during this time. I was on a uh, CMO podcast reunion last night with Gary Vaynerchuk. He and I hosted about a dozen of CMOs who have been on our show. And it was, you know, CMOs from Chipotle and KFC and Petco and AccuWeather and Kroger. And we went around to say, you know, how's it going? And this this, uh, concept of we've been on this surge energy for so long and people are exhausted. They're getting a bit listless. Yeah. They are, uh, it's just something, it's like, a, there's no end to it. It's they call it the, the ambiguous crisis. Yeah, it's so relentless. So I, I just want to understand how you are dealing with burnout, exhaustion with yourself personally, 
Yeah. With your family and with your team, really, the team yeah. you're leading. Well, we talk about it a lot as a leadership team at Levi's. And I think, you know, we're all human. Um, San Francisco has been shut down the longest, even longer than California. I think we shut down two days before even the state of California. Um Playgrounds are closed, which may not sound like a big deal, but when you have two kids, you know, under the age of six and you live in the city and don't have a yard, that's really, really challenging. Um, You know, it's tough for us. I know it's tough for my team members that have kids. We're all worried about our kids. I think I have a kindergartner starting his schooling online. I mean, he can't read. (laughs) I don't know how he's supposed to do this. So, you know, I'm, I'm really worried, but I'm trying to maintain, you know, keep the faith. I try to keep my kids busy and active. We all have rough days. I feel really lucky. I have an amazing husband and, and, you know, we're sort of in agreement about how we approach this crisis. I I can't imagine how difficult it would be for a couple that didn't, you know, um, we personally would really like the schools to open and we make that opinion known to the principal at, at our kids' schools. Um, I know that's not necessarily a popular opinion here in San Francisco, but I feel like it's really important for kids. And I worry a lot about kids being left behind, kids less fortunate than my own, especially. Um, So I'm willing to be sort of outspoken about that stance. Um, As far as how I take care of myself, one, I give the team as much flexibility as they need. You know, if I sense that somebody is at a breaking point, I tell them take a few days. Um, For myself, I try to build those breaks in. I probably don't do it enough, but I build time in the middle of the day to exercise. That sort of keeps me sane. Um, Right now, we can't go outside, so that's sort of difficult because I like to walk and run. Um, But so, what are you doing for exercise, Jen, in this strained environment? I've kind of gone out anyway, which I know isn't Mm -hmm. good, but I I feel like my mental health (laughs) depends on it, so I minimize it. Running is bad because you don't want to take deep breaths, so I'll walk. Um, I do have a bike at home, you know, in the house, and I can do that. Um, I have dance parties with my little children, (laughs) so we jump and run around. Um, I mean, I just try to be as human as possible in the way I manage my team. Um, Everybody's working so hard, you know, and business is tough given the the crisis as well. And so people want to work hard and they want to kind of see us get back to you know, prior year levels. And so people are just putting in so much time, but I try to encourage them to take breaks, to get exercise, to spend time with their family, to take care of their mental health, Mm -hmm. to see people um, that they feel comfortable seeing, because I think the lack of human interaction is really emotionally devastating in a sense. You know, I have a lot of interaction because I have so many kids and, Mm -hmm. um, but for people that live alone, I mean, I honestly, my heart goes out to them. Um, you know, I try to meet friends and take walks at the beach or have a lunch outside, which we can do yeah. recently here. And, uh, cause I, I just, I think the lack of the isolation, I just really, really worry about people. So I try to reach out when I haven't heard someone from someone in a while, just try to be a good friend. Um, I don't know what else you can do. You know, I'm not, however, able to read, which as you can see is something I normally <laughs> would do a lot. Yeah. There's um, a big bookshelf behind Jen and our video call here. Yeah. For our listeners. I, I uh, I'm normally a very avid reader, but I find it very hard to concentrate. I do the, too. In the few hours a day I might have, or hours hour in the one hour mm-hmm. a day I might have, so I tend to do more mindless activities during that time, which I I give myself a break and say that's okay for now. Yeah, we uh, semi closed our company for the month of August for all the reasons you're talking about, 
And uh, one thing I was finding it hard to concentrate too, so I just deliberately read a few books. How'd that go? Just actually okay, <laughs> because I didn't have as many scheduling issues, and so I my days were more open. Yeah, so I that just kind I just kind of got up and you know took a walk and had some coffee and said I'm just going to sit in this chair yeah. for two hours and work on this book. Yeah, I do find, I mean, we had the long weekend as everyone did this past weekend and I took the Friday off before and you really can get a lot of energy and strength from just taking a few days off even here and there, you know? Yeah, that's so important. It's amazing how your mind can clear and you just feel more like a person again. And so I think shutting off, putting your phone down, um, you know, taking a walk, reading a book. I hope you read something good. Um, I read several things good. Watching dumb TV, you know, anything that's a bit of an escape. I don't think we should feel bad about doing that. We need it. It's, it's human. So um, one of the books I read, I read, you know, a number about racism. I read books about uh, history. I read books about meditation, but I read the splendid and the vile about Churchill and world war two. And it's a very popular book now by Eric Larson. It just reminds you that, you know, Government is work. Yeah. It is real work, hard work, where you need a competency, competency, you need leadership, you need empathy, you need an agenda, you need strong communication skills. And in this time of uh, lack of leadership in our government, it reminds you that government is work. It's not a publicity stunt. Yeah. And that expertise matters. Yep. You know, yep. That's right. (laughs) It really does, which is one of the things I worry most about in the current sort of state of affairs is we've devalued expertise in many areas. And Mm Um, it takes expertise to govern effectively. Yeah. Now, listen, last time we talked, you had this powerful concept of, you know, quitting something. And I think you said that, you know, we think that winners don't quit and quitters are losers. And you said several times in your life, you quit something and it would just, it unleashed other things. Yeah. It led to very positive outcomes. And you're even thinking about writing a book about this at some point. Yeah. So I just want to ask you a very pointed question during this uh, crisis that we've been in now six, seven, eight months. You know, have you quit something that has been helpful for you? Unfortunately, I don't think I have. But um, I, you know what? I'm not in a position right now where I feel like I need to. I mean, I'd like some more relaxation time. But the things that I've quit in the past have been, I think, gotten to the point where they were damaging for me. And mm-hmm. instead of probably setting them aside when I should have, I kept sort of fighting to push through it, which is training I got, I mean, I think I'm like that naturally, um, but it was certainly reinforced um, in my time as a, as a gymnast, right? That's what you do. You push through the pain, you push through all of it. Um, and I, I think it was this sort of not very virtuous cycle that I learned to do that and, and ultimately got results and then until I didn't. And so it, it's something I think I do naturally and is ingrained in me. And, and then it was sort of reinforced in my childhood pursuits. And in, in all kinds of ways with relationships, there's relationships you can have in your life, whether it's friendships or romantic relationships that aren't good for you, you know, and I think knowing when to sort of say this served me well for a time, but it's not anymore and, and walk away. That's really important. I think you can have an idea for your career. And I tell people all the time we talked about it, you had a great um analogy i think about a jungle gym and sort of what did i get it right <laughs> yeah jungle gym well, is your career path right yeah, not a ladder t- a jungle gym that's right and i tell people all the time be open to different next steps you know um and 
you know, I've been in work environments that were not good for me and I didn't walk away soon enough. But, you know, I say now I'm in a positive situation. I have, you know, a great husband. I like my job. Yes, it's hard sometimes, but I like it and I feel supported. Um, I feel like people see the value that I add. Um, I like my kids. <laughs> I mean, you don't really get to walk away from them, nor should you. Um, I have projects that I pursue that I feel really good about that are making a difference in the world. And so I don't really feel like I need to walk away from anything right now. Um, but I hope that I remember, um, because I will at some point get myself entrenched in something that maybe isn't serving me. And I hope I can remember to walk away sooner rather than later to open up another door. It tends to be something I realize later in the process than is probably good for me. Um, but I hope at 51, I've learned a lesson and, and know when maybe, okay, this path isn't working, but it's time to move on. You know, the situation we are in now, which is so difficult and exhausting, um, I can't walk away from, right? So I just have to find ways to make it um, bearable and uh, maintain optimism. But I, I don't feel like I have anything in my life right now that I need to walk away from. In fact, I want to lean harder into some things. So that's a good do you thing. Th do you think you'll still do this book about the power of quitting? I do think I will when I can make mm -hmm. the space. You know, yeah, I have sure. like random journals and notes all over my house. And um, I do think I will. I don't know when. I don't have a ton of time right now. And my life is filled with projects that I care about, both mm -hmm. at work and outside of work. So at some point, I'll have a moment where I'm like, okay, this is what I'm doing now. Yeah. Well, let's spend a moment uh, about your brand and your business right now during the crisis. And, be, you know, beyond the obvious changes where you've accelerated e-commerce and, you know, you're sh selling through uh, different channels, et cetera, you're, communication, you're communicating through different channels, you know, what, what could you share with our listeners, maybe some surprising or non-obvious ways your business uh, and your brand has evolved over the last six to eight months? Yeah, I mean, I think we've sort of made that shift to digital, um, both in commerce as well as in connection with consumers and in just the way we sort of run our business internally. That's accelerated things we were already doing, but it's accelerated. I mean, I'll give you one example, which is more of an internal thing. Um, you know, as part of running an apparel brand, um, you know, one of the, the processes is you have to have all of the markets around the world adopt the line that you design. And we've always done that in person. You know, we do these big, beautiful presentations and everyone around the world comes in and they make the selections and they buy the assortment that's going to be sold, um, you know, a year out. And we've often thought of trying to digitize that process and do it virtually. And we would, we would get stuck, you know, so much of apparel is touching, feeling, seeing, and we just sort of couldn't get past that that wasn't going to work. Well, guess what? We just did it and we're about to do it again. And it worked just fine. Um, so I think necessity certainly mm -hmm. um, bred that. And I, I think we're looking at how we digitize all our business processes. Um, we've shifted most of our spend at this point to digital and we're seeing really strong consumer engagement, um, not just with young people, but definitely with young people. You know, I think the other thing we've seen, and I think it's easy to forget how mindsets have shifted in the last six months, you know, in the initial days of, I would call it almost panic, um, we really pulled way back, right? We needed to protect the company's bottom line. And we also didn't want to be insensitive to what people were feeling, you know, about um, their economic situation. We just didn't want to sort of oversell them. And we shifted to a, 
an approach. We did this whole series called 501 Live where we did these live concerts for 20 minutes every day. We got artists to participate um, basically for a donation to a charity of their choice. But we didn't sort of sell people super hard on product. You know, we pulled back on all of that. But one of the things we saw is that amidst difficult times, people need some brightness and some fun. And sometimes that's, that is product. You know, sometimes that is a fun new item. Um, so we've shifted the balance and it really is more about providing these moments of uplift through the brand, whether that's um, whether that's music or now we're focused on voter education through these IG Live series. Um, but we have gone back to launching new products um, and engaging consumers through that. And we see them to be really, really receptive because it's fun and we all want some fun. I mean, it's only human. So I think at first we were concerned that it would just feel sort of just not appropriate to what people were experiencing. But now we've we found a balance again and we do see people wanting to engage with our products. Do you think the Levi's brand is stronger now than it was eight months ago? Well, our goal is that we would emerge stronger, you know. Um, and I think when you go in with a brand that is so trusted and beloved, um, you know, we have an advantage there. I'm not sure I'm willing to say yet that it's stronger, but I would say as strong. Um, and I think as we go through this, we will emerge stronger. I think um, we've worked hard to do the right thing during these difficult times by by our consumers and all the constituencies affected, whether it's COVID or whether it's um, the protests around social justice. Um, we've really looked at our ourselves internally to say, what can we do differently? How can we be a better company? How can we be more diverse? We know we have work to do. And so I absolutely think we'll emerge stronger. You know, we're still sort of in the thick of it in a sense. And I think we've maintained our strength for sure. Yeah. Is there anything that's selling surprisingly well in these times that there would be an insight behind that? Yeah, the fashion and the newness, you know, and I think that's what we thought. We thought, we sort of thought, well, people are going to, rely on a trusted brand like ours, and they're going to want sort of trusted products. But they, and by definition, a new product is is not a known thing. Um, we do a lot of collaborations, you know, where our brand works with another designer um, or even a property. Um, you know, we did one with Mario Brothers, for instance. Um, we launched one with Tyler, the creator during this time, who's sort of an icon for Gen Z's. These have sold incredibly well. I mean, like instantaneously around the world, because I think they really are fun and they just provide some joy. Our new products are selling really well. Um, we've launched um, a new line built around cottonized hemp, which is much more sustainable, uses less water in the growing process and fewer pesticides, and that's performing well. Um, we've also brought back loose jeans, um, which if you remember back in the sort of 80s and early 90s was the trend. And then we went into a big skinny trend, kind of the whole other way. But um, we observed young people around the world buying sort of vintage oversized Levi's. And so we launched our own loose collection for men and women, and that's doing really well. So people really um, are enjoying the newness. And at the same time, they're enjoying the classics. So we've seen a surge in 501 sales, you know, which is obviously the icon from Levi's. It's the very first blue jean. And I think, again, it's a trusted product that people know and love. Um, it also, you know, our products last a long time. It's the quality built in, but also the timeless style. And I think people have a renewed focus on sustainability right now. They realize they can get by with less and have less of an impact on the planet. And I think that's good for Levi's, you know, because we've always built our products with sustainability in mind. 
I never know when to get rid of a pair of Levi's, you know, I never, never. because they never wear out. You don't need to. You should see the ones I'm wearing right now. <laughs> They're a vintage pair, I think from probably the late 80s. But yeah, I so think baggy. they look better. I should have kept yeah, the baggy well, ones, right? Well, they're 501s, but upsized, so oh, okay, a little baggy, yeah. but, you yeah. know, very beat up and worn in. But I think they look better that way, so. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> hey, you mentioned that you took a hard look at your own organization and, you know, are, were you doing enough on diversity and inclusion? And you made a very, very strong public statement about your underrepresentation of black leaders and that you're resolved to change that. Uh, so good for you. I just wonder if you could share. I know, you know, these things are never done. Is there anything you're learning as a leadership group as you do that that would help others who are yeah, on the same I'm, journey? Yeah. I mean, I think there's a couple things. Um, one, it's hard right now. A lot of companies aren't hiring. So, you know, I'd like to be able to make change more quickly. Um, but when you are where you are and you know that you have progress to make and there aren't a lot of open roles, um, it is it is difficult. So, you know, patience is key, but every role matters. And I think you have to, you know, it's no longer acceptable to say, well, no one applied, you know, no, you know, no black people applied for this position or no diverse candidates applied. And, you know, I think we're all in the place right now at Levi's where if that's the case, then we keep looking, you know, and we go and we look in new places and we develop relationships with new organizations that might be a different sort of feed for talent um, than what we've typically used. And so we're just more committed than ever to finding that talent. And we believe it will make us better, you know, especially on the consumer facing side of things. You know, how can we market effectively to the consumer base in America that's incredibly diverse if we aren't diverse on the inside? And so I'm just not willing to, we all are not willing to just sort of go with whoever applied, if you see what I mean. We want to mm -hmm. look further and wider um, to ensure that we're creating that sort of diverse point of view internally. Um, so that's one thing is just, you know, kind of find different places to look. Just don't do the typical kind of, you know, these, we went to these two or three companies yeah. and posted on LinkedIn because you might not get um, a diverse slate of candidates. I think the other thing is, you know, address issues head on. Don't be afraid to have very uncomfortable conversations that might make us all uncomfortable because we're afraid to say the wrong thing because not saying anything at this point is simply unacceptable. And I have a lot of comfort with being uncomfortable. So I think, um, you know, for me, I don't know, I'm not that afraid of saying the wrong thing. You know, I, I think it's better to say something and mm -hmm. to try. Um, others are less comfortable with that. And so I try to just work with my peers um, to encourage them to kind of lean into these conversations. You know, we've all sort of observed what has happened at Adidas um, in the last few months. And I think it's such a great brand. And I think the lack of willingness to sort of lean in and have those hard conversations for me was a big, a big learning, you know, um, try to sort of not be defensive. If somebody's telling you that this is a problem, who's an employee in your organization, listen with an open mind. Um, I think all too often we sort of, our defenses go up. You know, I didn't do that. I'm not, you know, I'm not racist. I, I think just listen, talk less and listen more. And yeah. there's a real appreciation for, um, for that, being willing to have the hard conversations. And I think we're just trying to elevate the diverse voices in the company that we do have. I co-lead um, 
the Black Employee Resource Group. I'm the co-executive sponsor. And so I feel like I have a direct line um, to a very diverse set of employees, many on my team. And, and so I just want to, I want to listen. I want to know how, you know, their suggestions about recruiting. I want to recruit from places I wouldn't typically. So I ask their advice. Um, we're also actively searching for a diversity, inclusion, and belonging leader, um, as well as a black board member. And we, we, we listed that in our key actions. And so we, we started work on those things right away. I mean, I think every decision matters, every choice matters, and we all just need to kind of start the work mm -hmm. that, that it's, we're not going to get there overnight. Um, but I do believe we'll all be better as we start this process. Yeah. We've all been there. You spend millions of dollars each year driving traffic to your company's website, and then the results come in and they're just not what you hoped. On top of that, 81% of marketing leaders say website ownership is a challenge. So what do you do? Well, you switch to Webflow. Let me tell you why. Webflow's visual-first platform empowers your team to own your company's most valuable dynamic marketing asset, your website. From launching a new site to optimizing for SEO and conversions, Webflow gives you the tools you need to drive business growth fast. Unlock your website's full potential when you build, manage, and host with Webflow. Get started today at webflow.com. Jen, I want to switch to uh, the last part of this mini podcast about Athlete A. And you, when I last talked to you, you were just about to release this documentary, which you produced called Athlete A on Netflix. Yes. And it's about gymnastics and, and sexual abuse and the investigative reporting team who followed it. I watched it, you know, after we met, and it was very moving. And I thought I was kind of aware and sensitive to this topic because I follow sports and I follow controversies. But even with that, uh, especially the last 10 or 15 minutes of it, just, just very riveting. So our listeners should all watch it. But I want to ask you, uh, you know, why why did you do this, yeah. and how did you do it? It's such a yeah. remarkable piece of film and Thank storytelling, you. and you did it on top of everything. Yeah. So tell tell us the why and the how. Well. Um, thank you for watching. You sent me a lovely note about it. I really do appreciate it. Um, let's see. I mean, I was an elite athlete. We talked about that last time. I was an elite gymnast in the 80s and um, a national team member for seven years, national champion in 1986. And I left the sport just really utterly broken. It's the best example in my life of waiting too long to quit, I think. Um, and for someone to have achieved the, achieved the success that I achieved, to walk away feeling so utterly broken emotionally, <clears throat> physically, psychologically, to me on its face, there's something wrong there, you know, and I continued to suffer for many, many years into my late thirties, probably early forties. Um, the, the damaging effects, the long-term effects of emotional and physical abuse. Um, I was not sexually abused, but it was all around me. And so I was very cognizant of the fact that this was happening and adults weren't intervening, which also has a psychological effect on how much you matter, you know? And I mean, essentially the coaching style is to break kids down, make them feel worthless. I don't know why. I don't know how in any world that seems like something that would be effective. And I am very convinced that we lose more champions and we lose more high performers than we gain winners with that style. But it's so embedded in the culture that they can't even see it. And so, 
you know, I struggled for probably two decades and I ultimately wrote a book in 2008 called Chalked Up, which was a memoir about my experiences. And I did it really to sort of set the whole thing behind me, put it to rest, right? And it had weirdly the opposite effect because then I became like this early whistleblower and there weren't that many people. I mean, I was a lone voice. There weren't really many people willing to say this. And it was really difficult. I was bullied and harassed. Um, but then I became an advocate for athletes. And so ultimately, when the Nasser story was breaking, I had worked with the lawyer and many of the athletes. And I, as I was going through it, as someone I would consider myself a storyteller, I felt like this would be a really powerful film, um, a documentary, because it's about the truth. And, you know, when I wrote my book, I was very insistent on using real names because I said, this is not a work of fiction. There's something about being true. Um, and that was controversial because I said some things about real people um, that were really damning, you know. Um, so to me, documentary was the way to do this. And I I just sort of felt like I could do it. I don't know why. It's sort of ridiculous. But I started talking to people. I wrote my pitch document and started talking to people and was quickly introduced to another producer in the Bay Area who does sort of female women-centric films, often directed by women. And she introduced me to a husband-wife team, a director team, and I pitched them with my little PowerPoint, which I learned in corporate America. And they said no at first, um, not because they didn't believe in the story, um, but they just finished another film about sexual assault, and they just said, it's too heavy. We, we need, like, we need a moment. Like, this is dark stuff. But I continued to harass them, <laughs> and they eventually agreed. And so my role as a producer was really, you know, I had all these contacts with so many of the athletes, so many of the survivors, um, and they trusted me as someone that wasn't sort of coming late to the party, but that had taken on great risk myself in speaking out. And so that trust is what enabled us to secure the incredible featured um, people that we have in the film, including the journalists who I knew, the lawyers who I knew, the detective. And so that was really my role as a producer, which is a little bit atypical. You know, I wasn't a line producer on the film every day, but I was bringing in all the talent and helping, um, helping to construct the story. One of the things that was very important to me was to connect Nasser to the larger, broader culture of abuse. I think that USA Gymnastics is invested or was in having us all believe that it was one bad apple. And I was like, that is not what this is. He couldn't have done what he did for 30 years if the whole culture wasn't rotten to the core and we needed to expose that. So I was bullish about that. Um, and that was, that was kind of my role. I couldn't have dreamed a response like we're having. Um, it's How did amazing. you feel when you saw it completed? and fully realized and you sat in a, a chair or a theater or wherever you were and watched it unfold. Yeah. I mean, I was lucky. I obviously saw iterations along mm -hmm. the way and it's a complicated story. So we had many iterations. Yeah. Our director, Don Bernier is a magician and we landed on this one, which was five or six edits in. Um, so, you know, it wasn't a grand reveal for me, but I did get to sit in a theater um, and watch it on the big screen. And despite Knowing the story and knowing all the people and having seen various cuts, you know, I was utterly moved to tears, of course, um, for for all of these young women, for myself, you know, and I, I'm in it briefly. Um, it's just devastating. I don't know how anyone can sit by and be okay with this. And the interesting thing is, while it's prompted this outpouring of gymnasts around the world across a range of countries, including the Netherlands, the UK, Canada, France, I mean, just so many countries, I can't even count them all, 
telling their stories of emotional and physical abuse, and they use the hashtag Gymnast Alliance. I read every one, and every one makes me want to cry. And they're from the 80s, the 70s, the 2000s. So it's endemic at this point. Um, but I mean, I couldn't be prouder because now people are calling it out, and I think change will come. I don't think it will be easy because even amidst that, there are people saying in the sport, this is ridiculous. That's just tough coaching. That's the retort. That's just tough coaching. That's what's required. Um, but they're getting outnumbered now. You know, it, it, in 2008, it was just me saying that. And it's hard when you're alone. And now it's an army of survivors. And um, there's no harder working people than gymnasts, I will tell you this. And so they won't give up until change happens. But it's so endemic to the sport that it does feel impermeable at times. And I think culture change is very, very difficult. So I, I think it'll take a long time, even though we're having this great moment, I still think it'll take a really long time. You've referred to a few ways your life has changed since the movie came out. Could you summarize the biggest change in your life since the documentary was released and has been viewed by so many and reviewed so critically well? Well, goodness. Um, I mean, I spent a lot of time, um, I wouldn't say promoting the film, but trying to encourage this movement. Um, we do panel discussions. I've done interviews. I will, I will do anything I can to keep the movement going. And it's not just gymnastics. It's a, the Olympic movement overall. So athletes and other sports are coming forward. I think I've gone from sort of this lone outsider voice to kind of the OG of <laughs> abuse in sport which is different. You know, I mean, there are always some people that supported me, but it was like, I was like blackballed from the sport. Whereas now, you know, I'm kind of celebrated and that's sort of an unusual position for me to be in. And I, I'm sort of a fighter. And so now I don't have to fight with people so much. It's kind of like, how do I kind of, um, I guess trying to figure out what my role is now, because for so long I was agitating for people just to see this as a problem. And now it's like they see it and they ask me, what do we do? And I'm like, oh, God, I'm not so sure. Mm -hmm. So I have sort of high level thoughts about what needs to be done. But I just had been in the mode so long of saying this is not OK. This is not OK. I hadn't gone to the action plan necessarily. So I've spent a lot of time thinking about what actions need to be taken by the athletes, by the parents, by the coaches, by the governing bodies, by the USOC, um, and, and trying to advocate for those changes. So that's a pretty big change, you know, to go from mm -hmm. this sort of lone voice all by yourself in a room to everybody wanting to know what can we do? What should we do? Yeah. Two lighthearted questions to end our discussion. The first one, you studied film in college and you've been a longtime fan of film. Do you have another film in you, Jen? Oh, definitely. Yeah. You know I what that know might what be? Is. You don't know what it is, but there's definitely, you're not done. No, no, no. I, I think um, ideas come to you when you least expect them, I think. Um, uh, you know, I go out for a run or a walk. Like when I'm trying to think of something, I can't do it. But when I let my mind kind of relax and rest, I do. I, I think, yes, I definitely think so. I don't know if it would be documentary or feature. I feel connected now to that industry and that community. So, um, so that's exciting because I feel like I would have the resources or the, the, I would know people to help do that if I had a great idea. I will one day. I think there are epic stories out there of people quitting something or I not do quitting too. something. That could be interesting. Yeah, I agree. That's a good one. So could, I also think, I mean, I don't think this story is done. There are heroic yeah, people yeah. in this movement. Um, one in particular is Rachel Den Hollander. Um, she has written a book and she was the first to go public with her name and likeness. And she really opened the floodgates. And I think her story is 
absolutely remarkable. I think she's a remarkable person. I think that warrants a film in and of itself. Yeah. All right. Last question. With everything going on around us, what do you look for? What are you looking forward to this fall and winter? I'm hoping my kids get to go to school. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I think it might be possible, especially for the younger ones. Um, I mean, that's the big thing. I look forward to seeing my family on the East Coast at some point. I don't know if that'll happen this fall. Um, oh, geez. I'm just looking forward to some sort of something to look forward to, <laughs> you know, <laughs> like I would love something to look forward to. Ah, that's not a great answer. No, right I now think- I'm, in, I'm in that haze, just like we all are of kind of just trudging through the days without any sort of end in sight and with not a lot to look forward to. but. I'm going to have my wedding anniversary this month, so I'm looking forward to celebrating with my husband. You know, the little everyday things. Sure, sure. Well, happy anniversary in advance. Thank and, you. And thank you, Jen, for being with us again. Uh, wonderful conversation. You're really thank inspiring. You. And thank you for, for sharing everything you're doing and everything you're thinking. And, uh, and, and good luck on everything. And, and looking forward to things. I'm where you are. I've enjoyed the women's tennis oh, nice. at the U.S. Open. It's been really good this year in a weird That's way. That's great. So that's I have enjoyed bad television. Well, there so. you go. Well, that's a theme. That's a theme. <laughs> all right, Jen, all the best. Take care. Thank you. Nice to see you, Jim. Good to see you. Bye. That was my conversation with Jennifer Say. Her honesty and empathy and pragmatism for her family and her team during this crisis was a highlight for me of this very intimate, very honest, very authentic conversation with Jen. What I found super helpful in this discussion with Jen was how she and her team are building their organization to be more diverse, more inclusive, with a real focus on more black leaders within the Levi Strauss organization positioned well to build their careers. That's it for this episode of our Leadership During Crisis series. We hope you enjoyed this follow-up episode and found value and insight into how these leaders and brands are operating during this pandemic. If you found this episode interesting or helpful, I would be so grateful if you shared it with your friends and if you gave the show a five-star rating on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. Subscribe to the show and get notified every time we publish a new episode. The CMO Podcast is a Gallery Media Group original production.